A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far away, Naboo was under an attack. And I thought me and Qui-Gon Jinn could talk the Federation into maybe cutting them a little slack. But their response, it didn't thrill us. They locked the doors and tried to kill us. We escaped from that gas. Then met Jar Jar and Boss Nass We took a bongo from the scene And we went to feed to see the queen We all wound up on Tatooine That's where we found this boy Hello and welcome to episode 42 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host Matthew Neugebauer coming to you live to air from sunny, cold, sunny uh, Wainwright, Alberta, Canada. I am joined as always by R2 and a bottle of water. <laughs> He's uh, not trying to get out while he can. Let's hope. Get to, the, get to warmer weather, R2 there, buddy. Uh, it is February 22nd, 2019. It is the... In- Churchland the Friday after Septuagesima Sunday or Epiphany 6. Uh, the church calendar gets wonky this time of year because we're approaching Lent, very close to Lent, and some changes in the 60s, 70s change the naming of the Sundays. That's a whole other thing to discuss. Uh, we are continuing our retrospective on the Phantom Menace. Uh, one of, this is one of those things where I realized after the fact what kind of shape after I recorded last week's episode, what kind of shape this is going to take. Last week happened to focus on the characters of the saga and then of of the film, rather, and then the theme of small beginnings. And, uh, yeah, and so I went ahead and renamed last week's episode. You can do that in the magic of the internet. Renamed last week's episode to uh, Every Saga Has a Beginning Part 1, the characters and theme of The Phantom Menace. Uh, and, and yeah, sorry, had <laughs> a bit of a throat frog in my throat, and, and of course that theme, <laughs> uh, you know, that may not be fully descriptive because there are other themes beyond that of small beginnings, in a good sense. Last week characters, this week I got to thinking about planets and world building, planet building, if you will, and uh, so I'll dive into that. And then over the next week, I'll see if there's, I'll think about if there's more to say about the theology behind the Phantom Menace. Did a lot of that at the beginning of this podcast, oh, I guess coming up on almost two years ago uh, when I first started this, going talking about Qui-Gon and Shmi and of course Anakin as the chosen one and uh, the way that connects with the water saga. But if there, I, I'm chewing on an idea right now, especially with the title, The Phantom Menace, and coming up to Lent and the way corruption and sin can eat at us from the inside. Again, I've talked about that with regards to the Jedi as a whole, uh, with the Jedi and the church as a whole. There, I mean, stories of. of church corruption and sinfulness are always going to be in the news 
in the news more, more recently. That's a whole other topic I will get to hopefully someday soon. Um, just about news and for Christ's sake, Anakin moments. I got a bit of a for Christ's sake, Anakin moment for myself. Uh, I was listening to Claudia Gray's interview. Um, I think it's on called the What the Force podcast. Great name. <laughs> um, and she talked about a bunch of things, and she talked about uh, romantic love, and uh, th- and this is a good uh, almost caveat or appendix to my episode on celibacy. She, Cody Gray, went into because, of course, Thane and Sienna is, is one of those classic love stories in Lost Stars. If you haven't read Lost Stars, you need to read Lost Stars. And she goes into the fact that we haven't actually had very good romantic stories in the past and what uh, what makes romance a, a very powerful storytelling medium or storytelling device rather is uh, when it's the reconciliation of opposites right you have Thane who uh, at least from is from the the wealthier population on that planet and then Sienna who's poor what that means for their characters going forward uh, I don't want to spoil too much but if you look from the logo it's Empire and Rebellion <laughs> and, and those differences and their the way that the love between the two characters holds them together and that throughout the original trilogy and that is one of the things one of the most important things that makes that book a young adult romance novel is, guys, I'm not, I'm not kidding. A young, young adult romance novel is the best Star Wars novel in the new canon. It's pretty universally agreed upon, objectively. My favorite is still Empire's End, but Lost Stars is, is just right up there. Which, of course, is the quality of Claudia Gray's writing is why, again, I'm so excited for Master and Apprentice coming up. Um... So, yeah, so that little, the, the force for Christ's sake, Anakin moment is that I'm actually going to be able to bring that into my sermon this Sunday on loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you and imagine a world where we can uh, come together and, and where, where our love can overcome such differences and reconcile opposites even if we don't even think it's possible. So, uh, that, that's kind of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for uh, for this coming Sunday. Um, I think about a bit of the news. Uh, oh, just go to, you know, Star Wars Resistance, kind of how I'm Star Warsing today. Sorry, I'm a bit of a easing into this episode right now. <laughs> um, Star Wars Resistance, which I haven't mentioned much, uh, but that show is getting to the point where of a must-watch show. It's it started out kind of we're unsure, kind of the small beginnings, just the way similar the way Rebels did, right? This kid on Lothal running into the cell, where well with Kaz, it starts small with this kind of inexperienced guy running into the resistance and is on the this small out of the way platform in the middle of a sea he's not in space he's on an ocean 
who knows where this is going to go. It is about to hit the point where it connects with the events of The Force Awakens and uh, The Last Jedi in the way that Rebels started to connect with Rogue One and A New Hope, or specifically Clone Wars always had more to do with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, but even that started small and got to really delve into some deeper themes of the wider saga. Resistance is starting to get there, believe me, and it's becoming, if, if you want to know, if you're the type to want to look to extra content beyond the films, if you're a type to... If you were on the fence about it, but you do generally, you watched Clone Wars, you watched Rebels, you look to canon to flesh out and fill out some of the things going on behind the films. Route Resistance is actually getting there, believe me. We've we've seen the trailer with Starkiller, with Hux's uh, speech. Yeah, it's getting there. So I'd recommend that. Um, hopefully going to be, well, I will be getting to more of Age of Republic comics soon, and of course, uh, Star Wars, on, the ongoing uh, comic, and, and Dr. I, I don't know, don't quite know what's coming out, um, but those stories, the comic stories, they're, they're turning along as they are, they does feel that there is a clear direction now, I, I do hope the ongoing series does need to get to Hoth eventually. It's got to. And that'll actually tie into Empire Strikes Back in a way. I'm sure they've thought about it with Lucasfilm. Just don't know when they're going to do it. There doesn't seem to be any kind of timeline uh, in terms of what they need regarding Episode Nine, because you know Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, so no worries there. Unless they're thinking of tying something in. I don't know. Um, there have been theories about the Marcona clan where Luke Han and Leia have encountered this out of the way clan. They're being connected to the Mandalorian somehow. I don't know if that's going to be the case. If they're going to tie things into new content. I don't know. But speaking of new content, and here's the the biggest piece of news. And, and again, I don't always address breaking news, but I think I, I need to. Is the dream for the Obi-Wan something... <laughs> is alive back back to life um, instead of a standalone film Solo I, I still liked Solo but it didn't do as well in the box office for various reasons so they, they, they're not going in the route of Kenobi standalone film but in line with what else everything else they seem to be doing they're gonna there's the rumor of a Disney Plus uh, show long short term series. Now, last week I talked about rumors and clickbait and all that. This one comes from Star Wars Newsnet, and so you know, I mean, I trust you know, I trust Collider, and so Star Wars Newsnet to at least have some credibility to the rumor. It's still just a rumor. It's actually pretty likely. It makes sense, um, you know, especially. You know, especially if episode nine pulls things together, pulls the fandom back together, especially the way we know Clone Wars and The Mandalorian are going to most likely take off 
I mean, and of course, the Cassian Andor series. That model seems to work already in, in different media. And so it makes sense that they'd go in this direction if Ewan McGregor is willing to do it. Kenobi without Ewan McGregor wouldn't be the same, obviously. <laughs> but again, it's still early times for a Kenobi series. We don't know. Uh, I'll definitely believe it when I see it fully, but uh, it is worth the mention because of Star Wars Newsnet posting that. So we'll see. Uh, all right. R2 and water. How you doing? All right. So to our main topic now. And again, last week it was the characters and the theme of the Phantom Menace. This week, I, I want to. I, I started to think more. Okay, about the world building, and of course, in Star Wars, it's worlds building, planets building, <laughs> if you will. So I want to focus on, on what we see, and especially in terms of the wider galaxy uh, and the political situation, uh, the social situation. And so that's why I'm going to start actually not with Naboo, but with Tatooine. Because, yes, chronologically, of course, Naboo, we see Naboo first. But Tatooine's interesting because, of course, it's the first planet we see in A New Hope. And A New Hope, we we see it with a Star Destroyer, you know, Vader's Star Destroyer, hovering over... Uh, Trying to catch down, track down the Tenta V4 and play as Leia and the Death Star plans. We see stormtroopers just landing and searching Moss Eisley without any problem. In the Phantom Menace, this is a different situation. There is no empire yet. There is no republic that reaches out that far. This is a Tatooine that has been controlled by the Huts. And kept isolated by the huts for probably a, a few centuries, if not for millennia. That Shmi herself says the Republic doesn't come out here. So Padme's surprised that the Republic's anti-slavery laws haven't reached there. It's almost disingenuous in a way because it's very naive is what it is. And I'm not saying Padme herself is necessarily naive, it's just... It's almost our own expectation that Tatooine is part of the wider galaxy. And that's because we know how important that planet ends up being. But just like that theme of small beginnings, it's out of the way. It's just this lifeless desert rock that has has moisture evaporators, but lots of animals. It's not lifeless. And of course, lots of, lots of creatures still. But you know, it's one where Republic credits don't work. <laughs> it's one where, uh, again, the Republic's anti-slavery laws don't come. The Republic itself, we know, doesn't have a unified military force. And so there's, you know, there are no clone troopers or stormtroopers there. Although it is interesting that even when we revisit Tatooine in Attack of the Clones, you know, well, there's still no Republic presence 
we don't go back to it in Revenge of the Sith. That's partly because the story uh, doesn't call for it necessarily, although there could be ways in which they could have worked it in. Talking about, you know, Anakin's past and the trauma of growing up as a slave and of seeing his mother abused and killed. But there's never been a sense of, the, you know, <laughs> the Tatooine having any part to play in the Clone Wars. And so we actually get a better sense of just how isolated and removed this planet is from the wider galaxy. So that line gives us greater weight to that line. If there's a bright center of the universe, when Luke says there's a bright center of the universe, we're on the planet it's farthest from. Of course, that bright center of the universe is Coruscant, which we'll get to in a second. We'll get to in a bit. But... Yeah, it's this it's this fascinating thing and just, you know, touching on what I've talked about before with the theology. It's it's Bethlehem of Judea. It's 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 this nothing out of the way uh place that no one thinks is significant. No one thinks uh is really worth being there except for the huts to hide out and have Jabba and his palace and his race uh, his Mutiv race I should say and uh, of course um, James Lucino does a lot more with that um, but it's just an, it's an interesting way of saying that the Republic is not unified it's not the hegemony that we think it is <laughs> compared to the empire. And so there's this beautiful contrast. Um, yeah. And, and it's actually ties in in a way to what we know about the new Republic and the way that that just did not have the same reach that the empire did. And part of that is uh, the Republic wanting to, wanting to play nice with the huts a little more, this is the old Republic. The and it's, it's this really fascinating contrast. Then a contrast with the Empire, contrast with the way the Empire goes goes in, and we do see later on. We see even the Darth Vader comic, how the first Darth Vader comic, how Vader actually does go back to to Jabba's palace and stiff stiff arms his way in, kind of like the way Luke will later, <laughs> and. There is this arrangement between the Empire and the Huts, and that, of course, the, the the underbelly, the Empire thrives on having a stable underbelly to destabilize things. <laughs> and also to say, here's the problem, we're the white gleaming solution. The Republic just didn't seem to care enough, and, or to, to care, I shouldn't say, not that the Empire really cared, it's just that didn't seem to care so much about the plight of people out in Tatooine. They were it was these centuries of very core centric uh, mindset of we're the core worlds. Yes we have this expansion region but anything beyond that oh, the huts, the huts control, the huts are gangsters. They don't really want to worry about them. 
kind of the, the 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 sand and the filth of Tatooine. We don't want to touch that. It's too pristine, and or, or we're too pristine, and and potentially na- a little naive about the way things are in the wider galaxy, and so that gets depicted in these this interaction between. Uh, Obi-Wan and, or not Obi-Wan Qui-Gon and Padme and even to some extent Jar Jar and Anakin and Watto and Shmi Republic credits Republic credits don't work out here you're some sort of Jedi using your mind tricks they have a species evolved to be resistant to these things because they're also I mean that's another interesting point is they you know, Watto and uh and, and others, you know, unlike Anakin, Watto and them didn't grow up revering the Jedi in the way that people in the Republic did. Anakin, of course, isn't discovered until he's nine years old and goes through all these, uh, you know, all the, <laughs> the, the, the trials and trauma of being a slave boy, <laughs> right? The Jedi could have relieved him from that and delivered him from that if he was in the Republic and so that's that underlying theme we do see them with the Jedi is just how in bed they are with the Republic and with Republic politics and I mean again probably Republic views of Outer Rim places dust balls like Tatooine and it takes a character like Qui-Gon, takes a desperate situation like their hyperdrive failing to have to land on Tatooine and try and see what they can do. And uh, it, it's this, it's, again, it's this fascinating, fascinating clash between two worlds, two parts of the galaxy that we don't really get in A New Hope. We get it a little bit in the clash between Luke and Leia, right? In how... Leia is the the dignified, civil quote unquote civilized statesperson, and Luke is the farm boy. Right? <laughs> we get that, so we get that a little bit, but we see it more, more profoundly in the Phantom Menace. Probably more profoundly in Phantom Menace than in any other film. We get this establishment that for. All these centuries, all these these decades, all these you know these centuries, we don't know, possibly millennia. There has been a very strong distinction between center and periphery, and unlike with the empire, in the way a lot of uh, you know, a lot of Western countries now, center and periphery are about resource extraction, are about labor extraction. Right, the Empire can go goes and exploits these planets. Of course, there's not really much on Tatooine to be exploited, except for having a relationship with the Huts, who can uh, feed their the underbelly of the Empire. The Republic just was hands off with Tatooine, with other places. That, of course, ties into the Separatists and the Separatist movement which probably had more to do with 
the Republic exploiting other planets for the sake of the core. Uh, and if Tatooine had things to be exploited, they probably would have been exploited too. But it was still this distance, and this uh, naivete, this uh, ignorance of this world out there, this dangerous, risky place that you know Jar Jar can <laughs> grab it, grab this food with his tongue, and then Sebulba can uh, jump on it, right? The Wild West, if you will, versus this quote-unquote civilized East. So that's that's Tatooine. Take a bit of a break. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Which, of course, you first hear on Tatooine. And, of course, and underlines the change, right? Obi-Wan grows up on Stooge... Well, is born on Stooge. He grows up in the Jedi Temple... And is now forced to wait in exile on Tatooine. Um, which, again, hopefully we get a great series about that. I mentioned the Jedi being so core-focused. And one of the uh, amazing th things about Tatooine, it's the first time we get to see Coruscant. Of course, we see Coruscant far more in Revenge of the Sith and a bit more in Attack of the Clones. But... This is the first time we really get to see it. They did put in the Return of the Jedi uh, special editions at the the celebrations. They saw they showed uh, or the the the, the uh, thing at the end where they're all happily ever after. Of course, we don't know it. Turned, we know it didn't turn out that way, but they're all happy ever after and. We actually get to see Coruscant and people celebrating and um, toppling over a statue of, of the Emperor. We see a glimpse of it. We see it far more in, in The Phantom Menace. Now, Coruscant, of course, gets its original, original uh, start from Timothy Zahn's trilogy, um, the Throne trilogy. Where the New Republic, Leia and, and them have, have started to uh, <coughs> uh, build this New Republic. And uh, it's funny, so I, I haven't actually read the novels, just a confession. I haven't actually read the novels of Thrawn Trilogy. I read the, the comic adaptation. Of course, Coruscant looks nothing like <laughs> what we see in the films. Um, but that's good. I mean, the, the, the comics were also done in the 90s, too. Uh, so, or early 90s. So, it looks different. But the idea of an ecumenopolis, a whole city, a, a city that encompasses the whole planet. And there's a sense, two things there is that this is ancient. It takes, again, millennia to really build around this. Earth is nowhere near close, of course. But it's meant to. Uh, meant to remind us of the major cities of the world, of Beijing and uh, New Delhi, and, or, or uh, you know, of Delhi and New York and London, and yes, in my case, Edmonton, and Toronto, right? <laughs> um, so ancient, but also very opulent and very wealthy. That is. 
the, the bright center of the universe. Not literally, because you can't really go into the core. It's too dangerous, unless you're Yoda. But it's the first time we really see a very clean, polished, brilliant city. Yeah, we see Imperial facilities in Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, and they're very clean and polished, but they're very orderly and functional and very military. Tatooine, is, with its beautiful rounded curves and its various species and laneways, it really is a coming together of culture and civilization and society <coughs> in a way that, of course, Tatooine isn't. <laughs> I mean, Tatooine is another way of coming together of culture and civilization, but the opposite end, the opposite extreme. And we see that that's the heart of the Republic is, is there, and it's opulence, it's corrupt core from within the way that wealth corrupts and it's a very strong theme because we see both the senate and its machinations and very comfortable very easy with spending debates and tying up this this uh blockade of naboo in, in this these committees and these uh procedures they're comfortable with that. People are dying and said it's going to take a lunch break, right? You know, similar kind of the arrogant naive ignorance uh, that we saw displayed with, with when it comes to Tatooine, similar with Naboo in a way, in the, in the Galactic Senate. And it's massive and it's the height of technology. It's the height of art and culture. And, of course, we have the Jedi Temple, which in a city full of, in a planet full of city, it towers above the rest. It stands as gleaming white five pillars of the Jedi Temple. And it sits physically, just the physical expression of it sits on the foundation of the Republic, in the center of the Republic. And the cold, transparent steel institution that is the Republic, the Jedi owes everything to it already. And so, in a way, the end of Revenge of the Sith, Vader walking, Anakin Vader walking into the Jedi Temple and taking back <laughs> what the Jedi owe them, basically. Uh, I mean, George Lucas knew that was coming, had to know that was coming. We already see it in a way uh, in our first glimpse of the Jedi Temple. And um, just as the Senate is starting to be, is clearly corrupted from within, we don't see the Jedi being corrupted from within so much until Attack of the Clones a little bit. But we do know that, for example, we do know that Qui-Gon has his differences. Qui-Gon can see things coming down the pipe. We do know even with Ani when they're testing Anakin, they can't fully see the future. They can't. There's, there's just this vague dark side fear clouding him, missing his mother, 
<laughs> that distance, right? He's a, he's a fish out of water, this kid. <clears throat> Just like, you know, how Padme was a fish out of water in Tatooine, Anakin is a fish out of water in Coruscant. Um, they can't see the coming storm. They don't even believe the Sith are real. And of course they would. Why would they? Sith have been hiding for for a thousand years while the Jedi have been able to build up this institutional position within the Republic that we do see physically manifested in their temple that sits on the Republic. <laughs> sits on that foundation physically. Everyone can see it. Everyone can, can look up it. It is literally a pedestal waiting for them to be toppled. <laughs> Quite literally waiting for them to be knocked off. And, of course, Palpatine is looking over from uh, <laughs> from the Senate and saying, okay, I'm going to manufacture this crisis, starting with my home planet, starting with the blockade of my home planet, manufacture this crisis that topples the Jedi Order. Because, of course, to him, as, as the Sith, that's his only goal, really. Yes, power to topple the Jedi Order, power to have mastery of the Force. Here's this rival, rival masters over the Force. Uh, in the, the, the Force that binds the universe together, in the Sith mindset, um, the, for the, for the thing, again, James Lucino goes into this, in the Sith mindset, it's, the Force is just a thing to be controlled. If you control the force, you control the galaxy. So the Empire becomes the means for Palpatine to control the force, really. Or at least <coughs> send his minions out to control the galaxy while he focuses on controlling the force. Bit of a water break. And what we see in The Phantom Menace, and this is the fascinating thing, is the Jedi have also built into this, bought into this already. That's the corruption of the Jedi. They've already, even if it goes against their doctrines, even if it goes against, sort of the way Qui-Gon expresses being mindful of the living force. But he stands outside of it, and he sits outside of the council, because he isn't, will, because he isn't willing to give in to the way that this Jedi Order sits atop the Republic, right? <laughs> and, of course, it's complicated because, for, complicated just dipping into you know, the church parallel here, complicated because the answer isn't to be, let's say, hidden and anonymous, but this is the very vision of a Christendom society where the church is on top of the medieval world. So it's, it's, it's beautiful in how symbolic this architecture is. Uh, of course, on, you have the Senate and you have the Jedi Temple. And then you have everybody underneath. <laughs> we don't quite go into the underworld yet. Um, we do a little bit on Attack of the Clones. We do quite a bit in Clone Wars. 
um, and just how pressed down, uh, physically pressed the, the, the rich, the powerful on the surface of Coruscant pressed down to the lower levels upon the lower levels and the poor and the, the struggling people who could not escape the planet even if they wanted to you know get infested and attacked by Dianogas and uh, ridden with crime and I mean in a way it, it's it's a different planet different world in the lower levels and that's of course fascinating to we know about Coruscant later on ultimately of course what we know right below directly below the Jedi Temple but all the way down to the core I don't know if this is confirmed in canon but certainly in legends there's a Sith Temple and a Sith Shrine and that can that can go two ways right um that at the heart of Coruscant is this corruption of wealth and opulence that the dark side uses to enslave people, both enslave them in their wealth and in their poverty. And that the Jedi being sitting on the Republic that way are complicit in it. Complicit in it. Um, or it could also mean there are positive ways of looking at this. I mean, the way churches are built atop. Uh, well, I don't want to. I want to be careful because I don't want to equate pagan shrines and sites with the Sith. But built atop places of, of violence and oppression, and then they bring learning and, and <laughs> peace and security. So the, the, that that dimension is in play there too, reclaiming corruption of the past, reclaiming places of corruption and violence for the sake of peace and justice in the galaxy, which of course the Jedi did have a role in, right? Which of course the Galactic Republic did have a role in, right? We know in canon at least, we still know in canon that there has been a long period of peace and prosperity it's born complacency but for the wider galaxy the, the age of the Republic has been an age of peace and the Jedi have, have had a great deal of good to play in that it's just that that had an expiry date that the Sith accelerated and knocked the Jedi off their perch and of course that's uh, what makes it so fascinating what, what makes it so powerful with the last Jedi is that they can actually reform and renew because they aren't there, there, there is no we don't know what the state of the Jedi temple is uh, post uh, post return of the Jedi we know Palpatine uses it for his palace as a way of sticking it to any kind of memory of the Jedi, saying they were the problem and now I'm the solution. But uh, that only serves to complete what Coruscant's corrupt opulence 
as a whole, both Senate and uh, Temple, of course, he abolishes, he, he dissolves the Senate and rules from what was the Jedi Temple as a Sith. <laughs> so, uh, the physical architecture representing this drama, this galactic cosmic drama that's at play. Okay. Getting to the end, one more break. Because, uh, very quickly, I do want to talk about Naboo. And in between Tatooine and Coruscant is uh, the perfect medium, the perfect balance. Is this planet where they elect a 14-year-old, a teenager who has to inherently be progressive with new ideas, who can be mentored by an appointed governor of Theed, and that's how the Naboo uh, political system works. Built in to it is the, the dialogue between tradition and innovation. And yes, the monarch has to uphold traditions, and the governor has to be open to innovation. Both have to be sensitive to the needs of the present. But what we see with Naboo, uh, well, we see two things. Of course, we see a similar relationship with the Gungans that the wider galaxy had with Tatooine. Isolated, backwards creatures that actually uh, <laughs> end up needing a Padme to, well, well, the Naboo need a Padme to be able to be humble enough to see actually they people we need to coexist with. Of course, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have something to say about that too. We also see a people who are very intent on preserving tradition, not for its own sake, but as the cultural, uh, what's the word? The cultural capital, the cultural resource that can sustain them going forward. They're peaceful, even their weapons are more ceremonial than actually meant for combat. Even I even have their, the Hot Wheels kind of Naboo Starfighter. It's beautiful, it's elegant. It's only a security force. And of course that is common throughout the galaxy at the time. But Naboo is meant to be upheld as this ideal and when we're tempted to think that Coruscant is the ideal that the Jedi Temple are the ideal actually in a way it's really Naboo is the ideal of kind of out of the way yeah they are technically out of rim they are in the Galactic Senate right Palpatine is an important senator they are Engage with the wider galaxy, but they're able to be to uphold their own, go their own course, and yeah, they have natural resources. Uh, there are the trade routes. <laughs> the taxation of the trade routes leads to, of course, the trade federation being all upset and up in arms, literally 
but it's the the whole blockade is an allegory of the way corporate interests can weaken and lessen people's ability to preserve their own heritage and their own uh, traditions and uh, one of the beautiful things we see is I mean the air is clean there's grass there's lakes there's mountains on Naboo it isn't overrun with cities the way Coruscant is it isn't poor and controlled by gangsters the way Tatooine is Maybe there, there probably is poverty. There is uh, political machinations that lead to oppression. But that's not what we're given in the story. What we're given is a humble but healthy people whose way of life is being threatened. And the physical depiction of it is, I mean, these the beautiful Italian palace and lakeside and you have <clears throat> the tanks rolling through uh, the the corruption of the wider galaxy is even threatening to taint and touch this beautiful pristine environment of course we know it was already there because Palpatine is from that beautiful pristine environment but so is Padme yeah. You know, Palpatine is not a product of Naboo the way Padme is. And so, of course, Leia, in a way, is also a product of Naboo as much as she's a product of Alderaan, which is meant to be a parallel. It's almost as if we didn't get to see Alderaan, but we do get to see Naboo. And they both have uh, ties to the, the growing rebellion, the Rebel Alliance, to restore the Republic. And uh, thankfully, Naboo survives the Clone Wars and the Empire and the Galactic Civil War for the most part. We don't quite know what the effect of Operation Cinder is on Naboo. Poetic if we do see some need to rebuild. And as a sign of, uh, maybe this is the way Episode Nine can bring Naboo in as this beacon of hope, not of optimism of an untouched ideal, but of hope of uh, peace and prosperity for all, even through troubled times and coming through the oppression of the Empire and of the First Order, and rebuilding, just in the way that our heroes of the sequel trilogy have to rebuild the galaxy. All that comes from episode one. All that we see, uh, the way episode one showed us, not just where Palpatine comes from, but where Luke and Leia's mother comes from, <laughs> and I think even more so the way Luke and where Luke and Leia's mother comes from, birth mother, and where that spark of hope. We're going to hopefully see lots more of Naboo in Southern Ontario's Kate Johnson's uh, Queen's Shadow. Definitely have more to say there. Uh, but for now, this has been the planet building, the worlds of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Next week, I will 
I'm gonna over the next week. I'm gonna mull over again what more there might be to say about the theology of the lurking <laughs> fandom menace, but also what small beginnings might mean spiritually for us. This has been episode 43 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you always.